Good morning. Good morning. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Are there any conversations in world history that you wish you could have been there to hear it firsthand? What if you could have been a fly on the wall and listened to the talk on the day that the Declaration of Independence was signed? Listen to everything going on in that room? I think that would have been interesting. I wonder if you could have felt the excitement. Maybe there was some trepidation over what was about to take place. We know some of the things they said on that day, but we obviously don't know everything. Uh, On the other hand, many people have mentioned that they just wish they could have been there when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples. Jesus says there, uh, Luke says there, that Jesus told them about how basically all of the scriptures spoke of him. Ah, what if you could have been there and heard Jesus teaching them about how all the scriptures pointed to Jesus. That would have been incredible. I wish I could have been there and heard that. In our passage today in Mark 14, we get a chance to listen in on a conversation that we wouldn't have known about otherwise. But the Lord let us in on it and let us listen in. So we're going to hear that in our text this morning. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to read what we read last week, verse 26 down to 40, uh, 52 rather, and then we'll focus in on our passage. Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took, or excuse me, I need to back up 26 here. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word again. We are eager to know you, and we long that our love for you would increase, that our hatred of our own sin would increase, that our conformity to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, would increase. Lord, we want to look like this Savior who we've just read about here. Please continue to work in us by your Spirit. Produce the fruit of your Holy Spirit in us. And let your Son shine through in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to finish up Mark's sandwich. As I've called it in these two parts here. Last time we focused on the, the first part, the, the forecast of Peter's denial and the, the disciples fleeing at the end. We're going to focus on the middle of that now. Uh, and this is a moment that is so solemn that it almost feels like we're trespassing when we listen in on it. But God in his kindness has allowed us to hear this sacred moment of prayer. Uh, and it is given for our encouragement and to increase our worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we work our way through this moment in Gethsemane, we're going to see that Jesus obeys by faith where all else, everybody else, has disobeyed through unbelief. And we're going to see that as we consider Jesus' prayer in the garden here, we'll see his sorrow, we'll see his struggle, and we'll see his obedience here. So let's consider the, the sorrow of Jesus in this passage. After Jesus tells his disciples to sit while he goes and prays, Mark informs us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus is greatly distressed and troubled. He tells his disciples that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. That's powerful language. What's more, it's really not what we expect or what we've come to expect from Jesus. Uh, do you remember that time when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples? Uh, a huge storm comes in and it's thrashing the boat. And the disciples are doing their best to stay alive until they finally just lose it. And they're freaking out. But there's Jesus sleeping through the storm. And the disciples go and wake him up and say, don't you care that we're dying? And Jesus wakes up. And first he rebukes the storm and causes it to stop. And then he rebukes his disciples. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Read that in Mark 4.40. While everybody else is scared out of their minds, Jesus had full confidence in the situation, so much so that he was even sleeping. Or, when they get to the other side, on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, we see a man who's completely bonkers, a guy who is crazy, who's cutting himself with rocks, who's breaking chains, and he is filled with a horde of demons. And... No sooner does Jesus and his disciples get out of the boat, and the man comes running up to Jesus. I think any one of us would have climbed back into that boat and rowed as hard as we possibly could to get out of there. 
Jesus waits for him. Jesus encounters this man, and in his compassion, he casts out all of these demons. Jesus was not afraid whatsoever, and we see Jesus in all these situations that any one of us would have run for our lives. And Jesus stands strong. We, we don't get a sense that he bats an eye in the face of all of these situations. So it's pretty strange when we come to this moment, and here's Jesus in this beautiful garden, this grove of olive trees, and he is deeply distressed. He is so burdened that he could almost die. What could possibly explain this moment? I think only one thing. Jesus has come face to face with something far more concerning than anything he has encountered yet. For all of these things that Jesus has dealt with, this matter exceeds them all. Jesus knows, as verse 35 mentions, that the hour has come. Over the course of the next handful of hours, Jesus will be betrayed, as we read about here. He's going to be arrested. He'll be unjustly tried and unjustly convicted. He will be beaten. He will be dressed up in purple and have a crown of thorns put on his head and hailed as the king. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be scourged. And ultimately, he's going to be crucified. Now, Jesus himself has predicted this multiple times through the Gospel of Mark. And now the time has arrived. And it will be through this series of events that Jesus will be offered up as the sacrificial lamb to God. In fact, in a matter of hours, Jesus will be acting both as the priest and as the sacrifice. Soon Jesus will offer himself up so that we can be reconciled to God. And in that act, Jesus will become a curse for us. Paul says that in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus will pay for our sin by taking it upon himself and being punished in our place. Romans 8, 3-4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now this is shocking language, and it presses our understanding to its limits. But it is what the scripture teaches. Somehow, the blessed Son of God bore our punishment in our place on the cross. Somehow the sinless, the perfectly sinless Son of God became sin for us and for our salvation. Now this does not mean that somehow the Trinity is broken in this moment. It's not as if the Father and the Son are going to war against each other and the Trinity's busted. Some have suggested that, but that can't be. God is not opposed to himself. Yet, in some real sense, the Son of God experienced, I would say, describe it as, as a disruption in his fellowship with the Father 
on the cross. The continual experience of the Father's good pleasure on the Son, mediated by the Spirit, somehow that was disrupted on the cross as he took upon himself the weight of our sin. Now, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what he came to do to save us. And he knows at this moment that the hour has come. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sees the hill at Golgotha, and it shakes him to the core. Now, yes, the experience of the cross would be horrendous. Uh, Crucifixion was reserved only for the worst of the worst. It was cruel. It was painful. It was shameful. Certainly that must have weighed on Jesus. But heavier than that weight must have been the weight of our sin that Jesus knew he would bear on his shoulders on the cross. The crown of thorns would certainly hurt. But let's not forget that the thorns was the curse that God brought upon the land for Adam's sin. Uh, He would be taking that upon himself, pictured in those thorns, and that would wound him to his heart. This burden weighed Jesus down to the point that he says here that he could just about die on the spot. Brothers and sisters, this is what Christ faced for us. Is it any wonder that we will praise him for all eternity? Every day that we will be with God for all eternity will be Uh, will be a day that we are free from the punishment that our sins deserve. And that's because of what Christ has done for us. Jesus was weighed down with the burden of our sin on the cross so that we would not be sinking down through the lake of fire for all eternity. This is the amazing love that we've been shown in Christ. If you struggle with whether God loves you or not, I want to encourage you to look at Christ in this moment. See the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling down and pouring his heart out to God in prayer. Here is a point we see in scriptures again and again. God sent his son because he loved us. God didn't send his son so that maybe someday in the future he might love us. God sent his son on this mission because he loved us. It was his love that drove him to send his son. Accept this love and live in it and share it with others. We're called to that. Additionally, when you see what Christ has done for our salvation from sin, it should increase our hatred for our own sin. How can we ever coddle something that Christ went to the cross to pay for? Shall we chuckle at our fits of rage when Christ has died for that? Shall we stoke the flames of envy and covetousness when Christ has satisfied the wrath of God against us? Shall we flirt with lust when Jesus bled to cleanse us from our filth? We must not. Let this scene in the garden drive you to despise your sin and run to your Savior for help. Yes, he is more than eager to forgive and accept you joyfully when you repent and turn to him. Even more, he has sent his Holy Spirit to live in us and to strive for our holiness. Never give yourself over to sin as if it has power over you. Jesus has died to break that dominion. As we've considered here for a moment the sorrow of Jesus in his prayer in the garden, let's consider the struggle of Jesus here. Now, we already know the whole story. We've read through the gospel so many times. Uh, We know that Jesus will, in fact, go to the cross. 
we know that he's going to submit to everything that lays in front of him in order to make us free. Uh, and from where we stand today, it can almost seem predictable. We've read the Gospels enough to know that Jesus is going to make it through to the end where he says, it is finished. But at this moment, in the garden, all of that still lay ahead of Jesus. And so we see Jesus struggling with God in prayer in the garden. Reread verses 35 and 36 here. This is going a little farther. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus asked that if there is any way possible that this cup would pass from him. In a very true and real sense, Jesus does not want to drink this cup. Uh, The thing that lay ahead of him is literally the last thing on earth anybody would want to experience. And in this moment, we see the true humanity of Jesus. Jesus was no robot. He wasn't a machine without feelings. Jesus experienced pain and pleasure in this world just like we do, except without sin. I think here's another thing that's important for us to understand. In Christ, God became a man. It's not as if God zipped on a human suit like we would put on a costume. Uh, It's not as if his humanity was just some outfit. God the Son somehow added a human nature to himself. He added our human nature to himself. In Jesus, we see a unified person, one person with two natures. He has a true human and a true divine nature. In his human nature, he had a body and a soul like we do. In his death, his body and soul were separated. and In his resurrection, they were brought back together again. Again, there is a mystery here, like so many aspects of our faith. But we need to understand at least some of this reality for this scene to make sense. Jesus struggles in his prayer to the Father here because he was actually going to experience these things. He couldn't just tune out uh, and not feel these things. In his human will, Jesus has the natural desire to avoid these things. Yet, his overriding desire is to please the Father. And so he brings his human will in accord with the divine will. He brings it in accord with his Father's will. By the end of this prayer, Jesus has resolved to submit his human will to his divine will and fulfill the mission that he was sent to do. The very same mission that he intentionally came to do. Now, one important thing I have to emphasize here, it's easy to misunderstand this moment. It might seem, as we read this, that this moment is pure drudgery to Jesus, or that it's pure duty. But that's not the case. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, after the, the hall of faith in chapter 11, the author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. Uh, Even as we see incredible grief in the Garden of Gethsemane, there was also joyful expectation. It was the delight of Jesus to do God's will. And through the obedience of Jesus, he knew that he would be bringing glory to God, and that gave him joy. 
Further, he knew that he would be exalted to the right hand of God, and that was certainly a joyful prospect. Even more, through his sacrifice, Jesus would redeem us and bring us back to God. And that brought him joy as well. While we want to emphasize the cost of what Jesus gives here, we must not miss the fact that Jesus heartily embraced this mission. It was for the joy set before Jesus that he despised the shame and endured the cross. I hope you see the love and the glory of our Savior in this. There has never been a man like this. We've considered the obedience of Jesus already. We're going to see that more in a minute. I want to stop here and say something about the Christian and obedience. Uh, Sometimes for us, it can feel like obeying God will cost us everything. Or maybe if we obey God in a particular matter, that it will sap our lives of enjoyment. Really, that's a lie from the devil. Uh, It was the devil who said to Eve that God was keeping something back from her. And in in her disobedience, she lost so much. Although obedience can be painful at times, it actually leads to our greater joy. Grace-empowered obedience leads to our greater joy in God. When your obedience to God flows out of your right relationship with Him through Jesus, then your joy will be increased. Obedience will increase joy. Uh, But if your obedience to God is powered not by your love of God and His love for you, but if your obedience to God is powered by your attempts to clean yourself up, or attempts to earn something from God, then your joy will die the death of a million failures. If your obedience is not powered by your love for God and His love for you, then the kind of obedience that you're given will sap your joy. Every time you fall short, you might even think that your salvation is at stake. Uh, That kind of obedience will kill your joy. Grace-powered obedience will lead to your joy. Here in the garden, Jesus obeys out of a heart of love for God and for us. And so even as we see Jesus weighed down to the point of death here, he finds strength. He finds the courage to move forward. Uh, It's for the joy that's set before him that he presses on. We've already begun to consider the obedience of Jesus, but let's consider it just a little more here. Uh, In obedience, Jesus accepts the hour that has come upon him. One of the striking contrasts in our passage is that in the garden, where it's so peaceful that the disciples can't even keep their eyes open, they're falling asleep, Jesus is in deep turmoil. And then in the next scene, when everybody is losing their minds, Jesus has total peace and resolve. (laughs) What a contrast. I think the the only way this can be is because the real battle for Jesus took place in the garden. In that time, he resolved in his heart what he would do. So that when everything looked on the outside like it was going haywire, he was settled. He was settled in his heart. And he moved forward. I just want to take a moment to encourage all of us in that regard. Uh, If we know that we have a moment laying ahead of us in which we will be tempted to disobey God, now is the time to go to prayer about it. Now is the time to wrestle that out in our hearts. I'm not saying that God can't give you grace in the moment and temptation. He so often does. Nevertheless, it will serve us better in that moment if we settle that now in our hearts. Settle now, resolve now in your heart to obey the Lord, uh, and it will help you in the day of temptation. 
There's a, a contrast here that we want to see as well. Uh, in this moment in the garden, uh, it's not made explicitly in Mark, but it's made elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, Scott read from it in, in Romans 5. You see the contrast between one who was obedient in the garden and one who was disobedient. We see Christ, who in this moment in the garden is obedient to his Father, and we see Adam in the garden disobedient. In Romans five twelve to 21, Paul fleshes that out. There's a great contrast there. Adam's disobedience introduced sin into the world. The obedience of Christ introduced righteousness into it. On the other side, every human being has been subjected to Adam's fall through his disobedience. On the other side of that, we see that all those who belong to Christ are gifted with his righteousness. Everybody who's born into the world is born into Adam and his judgment. Uh, On the other side, when we believe in Christ, we are reborn and brought into justification, uh, the same that he achieved on the cross. Uh, The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us by faith. Faith is the means by which we enter into salvation, and faith is the means by which we walk with God every day. Uh, As we see elsewhere in Scripture, in fact, it's only by faith that we can obey. I want to consider one more passage with with you here. Uh, In Hebrews 3 and 4, we see a tension between disobedience, disbelief, and faith and obedience. Uh, In Hebrews 3 and 4, we see the tension of the Israelite, the first generation that came out of Egypt. They did not make it. They died in the wilderness. And why is that? Because they disobeyed God. And what's the reason they disobeyed? You can see it in Hebrews 3, 16 to 4, 2. I'll read it here. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Excuse me. While the promise, stand, the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. It's because of their disbelief that they disobeyed, that they were unable to obey, even it says here. Disbelief leads to disobedience. On the other hand, when faith flourishes, obedience can grow in that heart as well. Faith is the only fertile soil that true obedience can take root in. And only an obedience that's rooted in faith can please God. As we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has obeyed God out of his love for God. According to his human nature, Jesus fully trusts his Father. And so he presses on with the mission that he was sent to do and that he came to do. The hour has come, and Jesus, in obedience, embraces it. We will praise him today and for all eternity for that. This next week, as we come back to this text, we're going to consider the trial of Jesus before the high priest. I want to invite the men to prepare for communion and Elizabeth to come.